Welcome, fellow traveller, to the TED Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. I'm very happy to welcome Mark Charles to the tent today as a podcast guest. I've been wanting to have Mark on the program now for quite some time when I first heard that he ran for President of the United States in 2020. Mark is a Navajo speaker, writer and consultant on the complexities of American history, race, culture and faith. His book, Unsettling Truths, which he co-wrote with the professor Sung Chan Ra, is all about the doctrine of discovery, American exceptionalism and the history of progressive and conservative relationships to the native peoples in America. I find this an absolutely brilliant book and I recommend it to everyone that I know. I once jokingly commented to some friends that if every American who called themselves a Christian was actually a follower of the way of Jesus, then Mark would be president right now. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I do hope you check out Mark Charles's books and talks, which are available online. Right, on with the show. Did you have a, I saw on Instagram, did you have a conference? I was in, um, at Gordon College in near Boston this week, last weekend. They just posted the video online a few minutes or last night, I think. So I just shared it out on my Twitter, and my Facebook of the panel we were on about Thanksgiving. Okay. Oh, that's right. Cause it's tomorrow. Is it? No. When does thanks? Is it today? Is Thanksgiving today? It's the first, th- fourth Thursday. So it's the 25th this year. Oh, that must be a busy time for you. <laughs> yeah, I might usually my schedule between Columbus Day, which is the beginning of October, and Thanksgiving, which is the end of November, are kind of my busiest period just for things going on. Yeah, right. Just a whole corridor of white privilege that <laughs> needs to be exploded. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Also, I'm honored to have you here. So I've I've you're a guest that I've been thinking about and hearing about for a long time, Mark. And I don't know if you know this, but you've been on my radar for a while. So I'm really glad that you've actually agreed to come on the show. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's really good to be with you. If you don't mind, I'd like to introduce myself traditionally. So, Yate, Mark Charles, Yenishia, Tsin Bake Dene Anishle, Dotor Huglini Bashachin, Tsin Bake Dene Dashachelo Torochini Dashanella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identity comes from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Tsinbeke Dene'a. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbeke Dene'a. And my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochini. And that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge that um, I'm a dual citizen of the United States and the Navajo Nation. And my family and I moved from the Navajo Nation to Washington, D.C. about five years ago. And these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. And so the Piscataway are the nation that were living here, hunting here, farming here, fishing here, long before Columbus got lost at sea. And they're still here. 
I want to acknowledge the Piscataway as the host people of these lands. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands and just publicly state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Mark, thank you so much. I love that. Can I, can I tell you, I grew up as a settler. Oh, is that the word you would call me? A settler? I'm a white Canadian. I grew up on the plains of Alberta. And uh, I grew up on Blackfoot country. So I grew up on land that was, had been Blackfoot land. It, it still is Blackfoot land, but, and it's only in the last couple of years, Mark, can you believe that I've started to notice that and think about that, what that meant. Yeah, Canada has done a lot in the last five or 10 years to, I mean, Canada has always been better about acknowledging the treaties and of having an awareness of the native community. I think it's because it's a much larger percentage of the population there. And so they've, they've been more in the forefront, just like here in the US, African-Americans um, have a very large population and native Americans have a very small population. And so our issues are generally pushed to the side, but Canada's done more. Also, they were wrestling maybe five, six years ago with their residential schools in Canada and had a truth and reconciliation commission there, which I had the honor of attending one of those events. I was very impressed by some of the things Canada was doing to raise these issues to the forefront. And I was very disappointed by how they held that conversation incredibly narrowly because it was in response to a lawsuit brought by uh, residential school survivors. The TRC was very narrowly defined in regards to residential schools and did not deal directly with the doctrine of discovery and the theft of land and everything else that happened throughout that history. And so it, it was good for the very narrow purpose that it was, it was addressing, but it was not, um, it did not address the much larger and deeper problems that Canada and the United States have based on the doctrine of discovery. We're going to talk about this in great length. And I can't wait. I can't wait. Mark, can you tell us before we get to the Doctrine of Discovery, did you grow up knowing about the land that you were growing up? I mean, did you grow up thinking you were Navajo? Did you grow up thinking about the land whose people you were living on? What, what was the young Mark Charles? What was it like to be Mark Charles as a boy? So I grew up, you know, my, my mother is American of Dutch heritage. And my father is Navajo. Yeah. I attended a school that was actively transitioning from being a boarding school into a day school. It had all the history and the legacy of a boarding school where the goal was to kill the Indian to save the man. And yet it was working to become a, 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 a day school that was educating not only native, but other, other demographics as a, as a private Christian school. Where I live now on, on the East Coast, most of the native nations have been removed from these lands. Um, there are far less reservations here on the East Coast as people were pushed west into places like Oklahoma, Nebraska, and so on and so forth. In the Southwest, most of the nations and Pueblos still are on their traditional lands. So the Navajo people were removed from Denete, from our traditional land, which is between our four sacred mountains. Um, but then that was in 1863 under the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. But after he was assassinated, we were, we were able to negotiate a treaty and come back to our traditional lands. And so today our reservation is somewhat in proximity to the majority of our traditional lands. 
we're largely in the Southwest in the Four Corners area. Most of our reservation is in New Mexico and Arizona. We have a small amount in Southern Utah and no lands in Colorado, even though two of our, our sacred mountains are in Colorado. So I grew up very much, uh, I guess the best way I could describe it, I grew up at attending this, this school. I, my mother worked as a nurse for the mission agency that established the school um, through the Christian Reformed Church. My father's parents worked as translators for the, for the missionaries at that church. My dad was actually teaching at the high school when I was born. I describe my growing up as I grew up in a Dutch ghetto because it was very much a Dutch kind of enclave, highly Dutch American culture. So I grew up in a Dutch ghetto in a border town just off of the Navajo Nation. And not only did my grandparents live on that mission compound with us, but there were other members of my Navajo clan who lived there and worked there. And so I, I saw them frequently. And so I grew up very aware of that I was Navajo, um, but I did not grow up with the culture because my grandparents were boarding school survivors and they became Christians the Christianity they accepted was that to be a proper Christian, they had to be like the white male, <laughs> the white American. So they had to give up all of their culture, their language, the things they understood as sacred, their ceremonies, and they had to embrace Western cultural views and holidays and the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus, and they had to become like white Americans. And so because of that, they did not teach my father the language or the culture. And so he didn't know what to teach it to me. So I grew up in a very kind of, the, the CRC, the Christian Reformed Church is a reformed church. It's very much a white evangelical conservative faith. And so I grew up basically as a white evangelical, you know, at least theologically, because that's where I was going to school and that's where I was going to church. And so I grew up actually imagining myself or just naturally considering myself to be a Republican because the myth is that the Republican are the, that's the Christian party at least. And so I grew up without thinking about politics, but I grew up just naturally thinking I'm a Republican because the Republicans are the, the, the party that holds the Christian values. That has radically changed over the past, and my views of that have radically changed over the past 50 years of my life, but uh, that's the environment I grew up in. Does the, the awakening of your Navajo, like, how did you find the Navajo culture and traditions then? If your grandfather wasn't giving it to you, if your father wasn't giving it to you, like what, what happened? Where did that come from? So I, I grew up wanting to live in a bigger city. I grew up in Gallup, New Mexico, and it was a small border town to the reservation, 20,000 people. Um, Albuquerque was the next nearest city, and even that was only a few hundred thousand. And I, I had family in Los Angeles, and I always was kind of captivated by the big city. And so when I applied for colleges, I naturally just wanted to go to school at in a big city. My counselor at, at the school I went to, you know, tried to steer me towards Kelvin, uh, which is the CRC University in uh, in Grand Rapids. But I'm like, no, I don't want to go there. I want to go somewhere, you know, and I actually I actually wanted to not I didn't want to go necessarily to a Christian college, not because I didn't have an identity as a Christian, but I hated my faith being assumed. I did not like the fact that I was in an environment where it was assumed you were a Christian. And so 
owning your faith or standing for your faith really wasn't didn't mean anything. And so I wanted to go to a larger school. I wanted to go to be in Southern California. I love the ocean. I had gone to basketball camp in Southern California. I actually worked for a summer at Knott's Berry Farm. And so the school that the biggest school I knew in L.A. was UCLA. And so I applied there really not having any idea how competitive of a school it was and what it required to be successful there. But I was able to get in. And one of the things I, I say, I got involved with a, a, a Christian fellowship there called InterVarsity. And the way I describe it is at UCLA, I went in as a Christian, but but my faith was very much like my luggage, right? It was something I took with me, I was in, but I was the one in control. And at UCLA, I would say I, I met Jesus more directly and began to more concretely follow him. I would say he, I, my faith went from being my luggage to my Lord. But in the midst of that, I also began to understand more of my Navajo culture. Right, I grew up as an as an American going in, a, in this Dutch ghetto, my Navajo relatives living right nearby, um, and I thought I was fairly well assimilated to Western European culture. I didn't think I would have any sort of cultural challenges going to UCLA as a Navajo student. But uh, when I got there, it was like my third or fourth year in school. I realized that even though I was working hard to be respectful and to be considerate and to, to be a good student, a good friend, a good roommate, in almost every relationship I had, there was a level of tension in my relationships. And there was this perception that I was rude. And I couldn't understand why. So my fourth year, I think, I was in, I was in a class called the Social Psychology of Higher Education. And we were assigned a, a research paper on anything we wanted, as long as it was about us personally and higher education. And I chose to do my study on the Navajo perception of time and how that affects students coming off the reservation and studying in large universities. I could go on for an hour about this study. I won't, I won't go into all of this here. I've written about it. I've spoken about it numerous times. I think um, there might even be some stuff in my book about it. I forget if we included that. But um, basically, looking at the difference of Western time is linear and based on a schedule. And Navajo, most indigenous time, is circular and based on the completion of tasks. And so when you come from a place where you're more concerned about completing a task and time's going to come back around and you go to an environment that is hyperlinear and if you miss something, your world is over because you're never going to get that opportunity again and it's based on a very strict schedule, I realized through doing that study that the reason most of my people thought I was rude is because I was not adhering to their perception of time. Yes, I might be the last one to arrive at the meeting, at the class, or at the whatever event we were having, even, but I was always the last person to leave. Because in Navajo culture, the way you communicate value is not by showing up when it starts, but by staying until it finishes. And so again, I was just, it was just two completely different understandings of time. It was doing that study. I actually went back to the reservation and did research there, met with some of my elders to talk about what is our, I had to define the Navajo time perception. I actually ended up doing that study later over um, with some colleagues in the psych field. And we, we actually presented part of that paper at the, um, at the American Psychological Association's annual conference. Um, here in DC. 
And so, yeah, so that was one of the things I did, right? I also, I was, again, there were not many natives at UCLA. And so either I, I had to kind of figure this out for myself. So I designed an independent study because they weren't offering a lot of Native American study classes that I was really interested in. So I defined an independent study where I studied the Navajo history. I looked at our oral history and I, I looked at the written history and kind of see to where I could overlap them and how they were lining up, our creation story. And then I satisfied my foreign language requirement at the University of New Mexico by studying Navajo. Did you have to get special permission for that or did they recognize that right away as a... Well, the, so yeah, I actually, I actually did that. Um, I, I graduated without having, I mean, I... I kind of, I graduated, they called it graduated in abstentia, where I graduate, I got my diploma from UCLA, but I finished some of my requirements at another school. Mm -hmm. And so I was working at, in Albuquerque. And so I was able to, at, actually at the university. And so I was able to um, finish my foreign language requirement doing the Navajo language, they had Navajo language classes at UNM, the University of New Mexico. And so I just, took my, I took a year's worth of uh, Navajo language there mm -hmm. and then transferred those back to UCLA and there was no problem transferring that, so. So what's happening to Mark when he's, have, uh, you know, you're awakening the idea of the, the Navajo psychology and social psychology, but what about the residential schools and the Christian reformed churches and things? Like what's happening to you as you're starting to think about the Dutch religion that was that it was also shaping your well so see that transformation didn't really happen until years later um maybe okay. about five or six years later so after I graduated I, I worked and lived in New Mexico for a few years went to San Francisco back to LA got married and then we moved back to the the southwest and I was actually coaching and pre coaching at the school and preaching at the church on that mission compound at Rehoboth in Galton, New Mexico. And I wasn't ordained, but I got, it's called a license to exhort, where I was allowed to preach. I was a lay preacher. Not, I can't preach. I can exhort. Tomato, tomato. I don't know the difference. But anyway, um, I was exhorting in the, the, the reservation churches around the Southwest. I was asked by a church in Denver it was a church plant by the Christian Reformed Church called the Christian Indian Center. They needed a pastor, but they could not afford a full-time pastor. And so they were looking for a lay leader. An exhorter. Who could work <laughs> part-time. And so they asked me to apply and to considering pastoring their church. And so I, I did. They called me to, to go there, but I'm not ordained. So I was technically an elder at a neighboring church on loan to the, the Christian Indian Center as a preaching elder, blah, blah, blah. I was the pastor of the Christian Indian Center for two years. And there, my first council meeting with the church, they said to me, our last pastor introduced us to the idea of contextualizing worship for native culture. And we want you to lead us in that. I said, that sounds great. How do you spell it? Like, <laughs> I have no clue what you're talking about. And they said, there's a group of people called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. They meet almost every year in a different indigenous lands around the globe. And it's a group of people who are decolonizing their faith. They're all Christians, but they're, see, most indigenous peoples, not just in the U.S., but globally, were colonized by the gospel. People came in and said, here's the gospel. You have to 
you know, speak English and create a democracy and have capitalism and you have to give up your beliefs and accept the Easter Bunny and, you know, all the stuff that was happening in the residential schools, that was happening globally. And so these indigenous Christians were gathering now to say, how does our culture, our language, our understanding of the sacred, how do those impact the way we worship Jesus and, and, and live out our Christian faith? And so we went with that first conference that year that we attended was in Hawaii, hosted by the Native Hawaiians. And so we attended that, and that put us on a journey of not only engaging with this group, and I attended conferences with them in Sweden, in Israel, in New Zealand, um, all over the world. But it got us thinking about what does it mean to be Native and be a Christian? And so we started practicing that and testing some of those things in our church. And after two years, my wife and I realized if we were really gonna lead in this capacity, because I grew up in a border town, because I didn't grow up with the culture and the language, we would have to be on the reservation back in on the Navajo Nation. And so we made the decision with the blessing of our church to move back to the Navajo Nation. We wanted to be in the most remote section of the reservation we could find. And so members of our church in Denver um, had a hogan where the wife had grown up. She was a boarding school survivor. This was her family's sheep camp with her hogan that her family had built for her. And they were living in Denver and they said we could live there. And her sister and, and, and brother lived on that sheep camp. And so we moved back into this hogan. We were six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. That community had no running water, no electricity. The house was about 25 feet in diameter with a dirt floor, log walls. There was an outhouse about 75 feet away. Our neighbors were rug weavers and shepherds. And we moved there completely prepared to live off the grid, right? Prepared to haul our water and cook over a camp stove or an open fire, live by candlelight, use the outhouse. We were prepared to live off the grid. But the thing that caught us off guard, we were unprepared for, was how intensely marginalized we were, right? The thing that I observed very quickly is that the only groups of non-natives we ever saw were those who came to give us charity or those who came to take our picture. Nobody was coming to this land just to talk to us, to get to know us as people. At the same time, I'm observing and experiencing the historical trauma of the native community, which are most of them are boarding school survivors and the generational trauma that happens from that and that how that leads to further abuse within the family. And so I'm, I'm watching that, I'm witnessing that, I'm beginning to look at more at the history and I'm beginning to understand more of what actually happened in our nation's history. And I find myself becoming increasingly angry as well as fairly insecure, which surprised me because I would not describe myself as insecure growing up. I never, I never felt insecure because of my race. I never felt like, oh, I'm native, so therefore I'm somehow not, not belonging here. I always felt secure in my, under, my identity as a, you know, I never felt insecure because of my race. And yet I began feeling very insecure. And I was wrestling with how do I talk about this? Because every time I'd get on the phone, again, my friends weren't coming to visit. They were only people who gave us charity were coming to visit. And so I was trying to sort through this with some of my friends who were living off the reservation as well as people on the reservation. 
And every time the subject would come up, I could feel myself becoming increasingly angry until I'd have to either hang up the phone or bite my tongue so I wouldn't start yelling at my friends. So I tried to temper myself. I tried to disconnect, talk about it like I had read it in the newspaper. I was able then to engage in it better, but then my friends would get defensive. Well, my family didn't do that to you. My city didn't do those things. And soon they would hang up the phone. And I did not know how to bring this conversation in a way that I felt like I was articulating how I felt, but my friends were able to engage at the same time. And one day I'm writing a letter. This is probably the 10th time I'm trying to help them understand how it felt to be Native American living on an Indian reservation in the middle of the United States of America. And I said, it feels like our Native communities is this old grandmother who has a very large and very beautiful house. And years ago, some people come into our house and they violently locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture, they're eating our food, they're having a party inside our house. Now they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later. We're tired, we're old, we're weak, we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most, what causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and just simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I said that, that's it. That's how I'm feeling. I shared that with people in my community, and some said, you know, it's been a struggle to know how, how to articulate how it feels to live here, and you're hitting the nail on the head. I started sharing that with non-natives off the reservation. And instead of getting defensive, they would come back and say, how do we say thank you? And over the decades since then, this was in early 2000s, I've used that analogy or that metaphor to initiate dialogue between indigenous peoples and their colonizers, not just here in the US, but I've shared it even around the globe as I've traveled. And it's one of the better tools that I've been able to develop to articulate how it feels, but also to address the problem in a, in a very direct way. The challenge with all of this, whether it's politically or theologically or just socially or even religiously, the challenge is how do you have this conversation? Because it's such a painful dialogue, not only for the people on the receiving end of all the violence and oppression, but it's actually painful and shameful for the people who were on the giving end of that, right? Their legacy, their ancestors were the ones who were doing these things. The biggest challenge I found, not just back then, but even today, whether it's the work I do in churches or even the campaign I ran in 2020, is how do we get the nation to talk about this history in a way that's actually productive. I mean, you are, I would, I'm guessing you're the only guest I've ever had who's actually run for president. <laughs> this campaign that you did, so in 2020, you ran as an independent for the universe, uh, for the president of the United States. I mean, was that campaign born from this desire to reach some kind of national conversation where, where did that where did the campaign come from the the reason i ran the campaign is as i learned more of the history as i 
began to understand the doctrine of discovery, as I began to understand not only the how the theft of land and the enslavement of people was part of our history, but even the genocide and ethnic cleansing of these lands and the extreme violence that was enacted against Native peoples by some of our quote-unquote greatest presidents. You know, I, there's, I've written extensively and spoken extensively. There's two whole chapters in my book on the mythological legacy of Abraham Lincoln. The man was a blatant, unapologetic white supremacist until the day he died. And he was probably one of the most ethnic cleansing genocidal presidents in our nation's history. And as I began seeing this and observing this and, and looking at this history, one of the conclusions I came to is that the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. It's a conversation I would put on par with the Truth and the Reconciliation Commission that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. However, I would not call what we need truth and reconciliation because reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony, which is not accurate. If race is a human construct and race in the West was constructed for the purpose of oppressing and dividing, calling it reconciliation just reinforces the myth. Let's call it something more honest. Let's call it we need racial conciliation. Conciliation is just a mediation of a dispute. So we need a truth and conciliation commission, and I'm convinced we need it sooner rather than later. And we have to deal with it. And there's been talk around our country about having a truth and reconciliation commission, especially in regards to the enslavement of African people, which was an incredibly immoral and unjust action that absolutely needs to be confronted. But the problem is, is that's not the only incredibly immoral and unjust action that needs to be confronted. And the reason Native issues are not brought into these national dialogues is because to this day, the United States of America bases its land titles on the dehumanizing doctrine of discovery and the legal understanding that Natives are savages and therefore only occupants of the land. I gave a TEDx talk in 2018 called We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. I actually go through the legal cases where the doctrine of discovery is used to establish the precedent for land titles. And not only was it started in 1823 under John Marshall, one of what people would call our greatest Supreme Court um, judges in the history of the country, but it gets referenced by the court. The name, the doctrine of discovery gets referenced in 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005, when I spend time in that video looking closely at the 2005 case, helping people see how it is one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions written in my lifetime. And it was written and delivered by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, most progressives are shocked at that, right? She was the, the, the voice of dissent on a very conservative-leaning court, and she was the one fighting for the marginalized. And yes, she was, but only to a point. Because the problem is, is when your land titles are based on the legal understanding that natives are not human, this makes white supremacy a bipartisan value, which is absolutely, when push came to shove, why Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued and agreed with the arguments of John Marshall back in 1823, 
and concluded that yes, we cannot rekindle embers of sovereignty that long ago grew cold. Because everyone's playing, the right and left and progressive and conservative, they're all playing on a playground that's been stolen from from other people, which the right and left have all agreed weren't people in the first place. Not only weren't, but aren't. Aren't still, yeah. The Can legal we... understanding still exists today. So the doctrine of discovery is a medieval, you know, it comes from the papal documents of, of Europe. Tell us about this doctrine of discovery. I guarantee you, it has not been heard by many people who listen to this. So the doctrine of discovery, it's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic Church. The first one written in 1452 by Pope Nicholas V says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, Whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. So this is the doctrine that literally let European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the people because they did not see them as human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world, which was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. The first sentence of the first chapter of our book says you cannot discover lands already inhabited, right? You can steal those lands, you can conquer them, you can even colonize them. You can't discover them unless you believe the people who live there aren't human. Now, this doctrine gets embedded into the foundations of our nation. So our Declaration of Independence, which begins with this wildly inclusive phrase that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 30 lines later, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as savages. The Constitution starts with this inclusive phrase, we the people. Article 1, Section 2, that the part that defines who is and who is not covered by the Constitution, who is, who is and who is not included in this union, it never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, and counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. This doctrine of discovery has been deeply embedded into the foundations of our nation. And so what I was saying with my campaign is we need a national dialogue on race, gender, and class to wrestle with these issues. And the problem is, is when your land titles are based on white supremacy, that becomes a bipartisan value. No one wants to touch that. Even the African-American community struggles with wrestling with it at that issue. Why? Because when they were, when they were, I'm, I struggled to say freed because slavery was never abolished. When chattel slavery ended through the 13th Amendment, they were promised what? 40 acres and a mule. Now, they were never given those things, but whose 40 acres were they being promised? Right? The U.S. didn't have treaty rights to the lands they were giving away. But what this did is it, it, it gave the African-American community, it aligned their, their vision with white America's vision, which is we want to prosper on these lands that were stolen. And so, and so this is where it's like, wrestling with the doctrine of discovery and land titles. You know, if people think social security is the third rail of U.S. politics, the doctrine of discovery and rethinking
thinking land titles, that's the nuclear power plant that <laughs> that like powers the third rail. And no one wants to even go near that. And so this is why I ran for president, because I and if you, I, I invite people to go to my campaign website, it's still up, markcharles2020.com and watch. We had a nine minute video when we announced my campaign. And I go into depth of the challenges we face. I actually invite people. I, I announced 18 months before the campaign. I invited the nation onto an 18-month journey of understanding our history and of wrestling with our foundations. Now, what's fascinating, in the middle of this campaign, George Floyd gets lynched publicly, right? My book had come out the fall, prior fall in November of 2019. Had any other candidate, especially a white candidate, written this book on selling truths, it would have exploded onto the scene. Had Joe Biden written this book, had Pete Buttigieg written this book, had any of the white candidates or even Bernie Sanders written this book, right? They would have been hailed as this incredibly insightful and challenging, provocative understanding of our history and a, a, a profound vision of what we could be as a nation. But because it was a native candidate running as an independent, I couldn't even get people to, to the, the press to look at it. We sent copies out. We spoke to people about it. I even sent a copy to Trevor Noah. Even he didn't want to touch it. And so George Floyd gets lynched and the two primary candidates, this is now late into the campaign and it's down to primarily, well, it's down to Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Donald Trump issues an executive order saying banning certain chokeholds. Joe Biden comes out and says, we need to retrain our officers to shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. These were their solutions to this public lynching in 2020. We have to ban chokeholds and retrain officers to shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. I was the only candidate who said, if we want to end systemic and institutional violence against people of color, we need to start by actually abolishing slavery and removing the white supremacy from our foundations. We need to actually take the clause out of the 13th Amendment that keeps slavery legal in prison. Remember, Abraham Lincoln was a blatant white supremacist. He had no value for black lives. He even stated so very clearly, it's hanging at the Lincoln Memorial. He was actively committing genocide against Native peoples when he was assassinated. So he had no vision of people of color playing an equal role in society. And while he was against chattel slavery, he was by his own admission, absolutely convinced of the superiority of the white race had no intentions, as he quoted, he said himself, of making voters or jurors of Negroes or allowing them to hold office, order and remarry. I, I could go on. But anyway. Oh, it's all in your book. I, first so, of all, I'll just plug this book. It's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> I love Unsettling Truths. And it's all there. So he keeps slavery legal in prison, allowing a white judge, a white jury, or white law enforcement officers on a whim to remove the civil rights of people of color. That was his solution to the problem. So you can end chattel slavery, but not allow people of color to feel the security of being a full citizen. And so we need to address this. My, my 100 day plan, right? Joe Biden's 100 
100-day plan was to get 100 million shots in arms. Donald Trump's 100-day plan was to put his name on 100 billboards around the world. I don't know what his name was, but anyway, he, he doesn't have a plan. But anyway, my 100-day plan was to remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. Both on my campaign website and on my personal website, I have an edited version of the United States Constitution where I went through it with a strike-through font. If you read the entire constitution, preamble through the 27th minute, there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns, he, him, and his, who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by the document. There's not a single female pronoun in the entire constitution. So every place I found a, a gender-specific male pronoun, I put a strike-through font through it and replaced it with a gender-neutral or a proper noun. Phrases like excluding natives or Africans are equal to three-fifths, or the clause in the 13th Amendment, I took those out. I wasn't changing balance of powers. I wasn't changing checks and balances. I was merely editing the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy out of the document. There's not a corporation in existence today that operates on bylaws written in the 1700s. Yeah, I know. Right? They, they couldn't legally survive. Yeah. But we operate on bylaws written in the 1700s. And we treat them like there's some sort of sacred tablet that we can't touch. We amend it, but then you still have to read this racist and sexist document to get to the footnote at the end that says, oh, when we said this, we should have meant that. I said, let's just edit it. The thing about why I was convinced we could actually get all those edits in the first 100 days is because I was actually changing the Constitution to make it say what most people already believe it says. Most people think the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. They don't know what redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Most people believe that we the people does mean all the people. President Obama even said so in his final State of the Union, right? Most people believe that this document is meant to be inclusive. And so I'm merely- And it's carefully designed to exclude almost yeah. everyone, yeah. And so except for white landowning men. Yeah. And so, again, the only way you can argue against my edits to the Constitution is to make an argument for racism, sexism, and white supremacy. It's the perfect political ploy, right? There's no, Let's build a nation. This is my campaign phrase. Let's build a nation where for the very first time, we the people actually means all the people. And so I was convinced we could get that in the first 100 days because, again, you can't argue against it. Now, that's not going to change things overnight. Mark, you can't argue against it, but you can sure ignore it. You can absolutely ignore it, Yeah, which is absolutely what both the press and the Democrat and Republican parties did. They, I have never felt more invisible in my life. Than when you ran for president. <laughs> I was running for president. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was absolutely astounding. You would attend meetings and get written out of meetings, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I would. I, I was at I was at a, a, a forum with presidential candidates. It was the second Native American forum in Las Vegas. I was there in person, and Tom Strayer was there in person. All the other candidates, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, were in the impeachment hearings. Joe Biden didn't come, Donald Trump didn't come, but all the other candidates were in in the impeachment hearings, and so it was me and Tom that were there in person. And this, this forum didn't get near as much press as the first forum, which um, was in Iowa in August of 2019. 
but uh, the second one, um, I was there in person and Tom Sherry was there in person and ABC wrote a small blurb on their website about the forum. And they said, Tom Sherry was the only candidate who showed up in person. And my press team called them and said, your article is incorrect. Mark Charles was there for both days, not only speaking from the stage, but engaging with the audience. And the reporter blatantly said, we're not going to correct it. We're not going to change it. Yeah, it was. At, and even the first forum that I attended, there was one, two national stories that came out of that first forum. One was I was on Democracy Now! and was able to do a short interview the day after that. And second, um, Esquire wrote an article about me. And if you Google my name and Elizabeth Warren, just Google Mark Charles Elizabeth Warren, you'll find the article. It was titled, Elizabeth Warren was well-received at the Native American Forum, but Mark Charles was the main event. And this was at the forum where Bernie Sanders was there, uh, Elizabeth Warren was there, like all the candidates. This was early on in, 2000, in, uh, in August of 2019. So when we were on the same stage and acknowledged, people clearly saw the vision and the and the, the ideas we were putting forth were absolutely in line with what our country needed. But the press was working diligently with the Republican and the Democratic Party to absolutely ignore us at every chance they could. That happened throughout the entire race. We would get people finding us literally in October of 2020, even November of 2020, and they would come, they would see our announcement video, they would find our website, they would read our positions and they would email me and they would say, how have I never heard of you before? How are you not getting more press? You are hitting every single issue we need to address as a nation. And they were astounded. Like they would, I mean, they would actually say, you should call the networks and ask for an interview. I'm like, oh, you know, we I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> That's yeah. a great idea. <laughs> um, you know, but it's like people were astounded that the press wasn't covering our campaign. Is it because it's just too much work, truth and conciliation, and to take the no, white supremacy out? What, what is it, Mark? Why it's does the myth of American know? exceptionalism. All right, yes. In our book. It always is, isn't it? We identify American exceptionalism, and my wife actually pointed this out to me. American exceptionalism is the coping mechanism of a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past as well as its current racist reality. White America has to tell itself, not only is it better than everybody else, but they have a special relationship with God. They have a manifest destiny. They have promised lands. They're God's chosen people. This is not just a social and political argument. This is a religious argument. And American exceptionalism is the coping mechanism of white America. And if you want to succeed in politics, you have to learn how to tell white landowning men how exceptional they are, right? It's no mistake, right? Right after the, the, the civil rights movement and the, the expanding voting, access to voting in the 1960s and early 70s. So New Hampshire for years, decades actually, had been kind of one of the first nations or states to hold a primary. After, I think it was the, there was a very challenging convention in 68 or 70, 72, 68, I think it was, where there was actually a lot of violence. This is the first time yeah, African-Americans really, yeah. yeah. And after that, 
the Democratic Party decided that they were going to hold their first caucus in Iowa. Now, New Hampshire is the third whitest state in the country, and, and, and Iowa's the fifth. New Hampshire has the highest rate of home ownership, and Iowa has the highest rate of privately owned lands of any state in the, in the union. And so Iowa has a state law requiring them to be the first caucus, and New Hampshire has a state law requiring them to be the first primary. Because the two parties adhere to these laws, they literally force their candidates for a year after the midterm elections until the first primary to campaign nonstop to white landowning men, right? It's no mistake that the Democrats this year had the most diverse pool of, or in 2020, had the, the most diverse pool of candidates running in their primary. More women, more people of color, more members of LGBTQIA2S+, and yet they whittled it down to the most status quo white landowning male they could find even Joe Biden's wife, Dr. Biden, in the middle of that primary, she said to an audience, my husband may not be the best on the issues, but you have to vote for who's going to win, right? She knew her husband was mediocre. She knew her husband was status quo. She knew her husband wasn't going to do anything radical. And you know, she's like, but he's the white landowning male in this group. And he, you have, he's the one who's going to win. The fact, and even the Democratic Party, right, they changed their primary rules to allow a white billionaire access to the debates while they were actively removing the people of color who had out fundraised them. And yet they're removing them from the debates and they were creating space for a, this white billionaire. His name skips my mind right now anyway, from New York. Um, yeah. So it's just fascinating that, I mean, so if you want, and this is what You're thinking I- thinking of Bloomberg, but- Thank you, Michael yeah. Bloomberg. Yeah. So to make this as clear as I possibly can, in 2016, Donald Trump had his campaign, Make America Great Again, right? Which appeals to the white landowning male. We used to be a great country. We've had a black president. How, how we ever got a black president into this house designed for white landowning men, we'll never know, but we're gonna make America great again and bring back another white landowning male into this position. Right. This was this was absolutely his rhetoric and what he was trying to do. Now, not to be outdone, Hillary Clinton told her supporters that America's already great. Yeah, I know. In fact, at one of the at the at, at um one of the debates, the general election debates, she expanded and she said, not only is America already great, but America's great because America is good. And Donald Trump turned to her, looked at her, and said, I agree with her. I agree with everything she just said. At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama got on stage and said, America is already pretty great. And then Cory Booker, African-American senator from New Jersey, had political presidential ambitions. This was in 2016. He got on the main stage to endorse Hillary Clinton. In his speech, he acknowledged that the Declaration of Independence calls native savages. He acknowledged that women were excluded from the Constitution, and he acknowledged the Three-Fifths Compromise, which for a national politician, that's incredibly courageous. No one acknowledges that level of racism, sexism, white supremacy in our foundations. Very courageous. 
but he kept his political aspirations alive by following up those observations by stating that these things do not detract from our nation's greatness. Now, he would never say that in a closed-door meeting with African people, African Americans. He would never say that in a closed-door meeting with women or with Native Americans. But because he was on a national stage and he had political presidential aspirations. He's playing to the only audience that counts. Yeah. He had to play and to tell white landowning men how exceptional they are because he wanted their money and their votes. So he had to tell them, yes, these things are there and they're horrible, but they don't detract from your greatness. Right? Joe Biden ran. What he run on? Let's restore the soul of America. I mean, it's just make America great again. It's all yeah. the same sort of hogwash. Yeah. And so this is the challenge we're facing is, is because white landowning men have absolutely cornered the market on politics and the, the constitution's written to protect them, the, the system set up to keep them in power, right? Even, even the, the electoral college is in place to make sure that if the public does something crazy and votes outside of these lines, the electoral college can correct it and make sure that we get a white landowning male in there. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that the two of our last three presidents our two of our last four presidents have actually lost the electoral vote or lost the popular vote. And yet the electoral college still put them into office. Yeah, this is the challenge is the two parties work together to maintain the status quo. Yeah. And that's a problem. Even if we look at we talked started talking about George Floyd just a couple of weeks ago the Biden Justice Department decided they were not going to prosecute the officer who shot Jacob Blake, who was the black man who was shot seven times in the back by an officer, a white police officer. Yeah. Right. Now, this is not surprising. Remember, after the lynching of George Floyd, Trump said, let's ban chokeholds. Biden said, let's train them to shoot train our police officers to shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. Mm-hmm. Let's just shoot them non-lethally. So Jacob Blake wasn't choked, nor was he shot legal, lethally. So is it any surprise that he, that officer who did that unjust act was not going to be prosecuted? Joe Biden stated as much that he was not, that he's not concerned about that. Yeah. That was actually his preferred outcome. What happens, Mark, when when you talk to progressive? So I'm going to just take a guess that most of the people listening to Ten Theology probably don't identify as conservative Republicans. I'm just going to guess that most of them either are or are looking over at the progressive side and thinking, "Okay, that's that's me. That's more me. I might not be totally uh, bought into the whole left wing progressive agenda, but I'm but I'm more that than I am some sort of Republican Trumpist, right? So what happens when you say this stuff into these rooms, when you're talking to people who already think that they're your ally, like they go, oh, look, here comes a Native American man. Oh, brilliant. And they want to have a a selfie with you because you are, you represent everything that they think white America is not, right? And this is, this is, I actually spend the bulk of my time critiquing and even deconstructing progressive arguments instead of conservative ones. Okay. Correcting and rebuking, critiquing conservative arguments, right? That's like correcting a five-year-old. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's so blatant. Yeah. 
where it's off base. It's so clear to point out. The people following it may be blind to it, but it's easy to point out this is flawed thinking. Correcting the left is more like correcting a teenager, right? They have a little bit of savvy underneath them. They, they, they have a few ideas. They, they have a few tricks they've learned and they, they are working to make themselves look good even though they're not much different. And here's, here's a way, and, and so I do, I spend a lot of time critiquing the left. Again, let's, let's talk about what happened after this election, right? And since the 2020 election, Republican state elected officials, governors, state legislators, and so forth, have been working hard to basically restrict voter access in states all around the country. Right. They've been ramping up voter laws and and trying to restrict people from voting. And so what you have to understand is how the two parties operate and what they're afraid of. So the Republicans, which have a more explicitly racist, sexist and white supremacist platform, they know they're not going to grow their base very broadly, but they know they have a very committed and a very strong base. And so they're actually afraid of voters. The more people who vote, the less likely their candidates are to win. And so they're trying to restrict access to voting. The Democrats, right, their whole thing is they have a much more diverse base. More people of color, more women, more, more people from the margins. But they always, 99.9% .9 of the time, put forth the most status quo white landowning male from the 1% that they can find. 2020 is a perfect example of that, right? So once they do that, their biggest fear is that their base is now going to wander because their candidate doesn't reflect the values or even the experience of the people they want to vote for them. And so they're terrified of third-party independent candidates. So while the Republicans were actively working to restrict access to voting at the state level, the Democrats responded at the national level, level at the federal level, with their We the People Act, right? Which still hasn't been passed yet, but it's, it's been going through. And if you read the We the People Act, which was the, the Democrats' response to what was going on with voting for the Republicans. And there's no mistake, yes, what the Republicans are doing absolutely needs to be addressed. But in their, in their act, the, the Democrats have an amendment to one of the laws passed in the 1970s um, when all the voter reform bills were coming out. And when those laws in the 70s came out, they passed a law that said national parties Democrats, Republicans, can donate, I think it's two cents for every age-eligible voter directly to their nominee. So in 2020, that meant the Republicans could give Donald Trump $5 million, free and clear, and the, and the Democrats could give Joe Biden $5 million, free and clear, right? The, the, the parties can donate directly to their candidates two cents for every age eligible voter. The We the People Act amends that law and it now states the two national parties, the national parties can donate a flat $100 million directly to their candidates. Now this is on top 
of the huge disparity in fundraising that already exists between Democrats, Republicans, and third-party independent candidates. I, I was one of the highest fundraising independent candidates in the race, and I raised $150,000, right? Some Kanye West and Brock Pierce had more money, but it's because they're billionaires, and so they gave their campaigns more money. I was, I think, the highest independent campaign, um, and we raised $150,000. And now they're giving the two parties, not only do they have a billion dollar, more than a billion dollar disparity between what we're raising and what they're, they have, but now they're giving themselves another $100 million blanket of extra padding to just to make sure that, and so you have to remember that both the Democrats and the Republicans hate true democracy. And they work together playing good cop, bad cop, to maintain the status quo, and the status quo is based on racism, sexism, and white supremacy meant to benefit the white landowning male. So yeah, the, the, there's not a good party and a bad party. The two parties work together to keep things the way they are. I'm also interested in the personal, when you meet, okay, let me tell you what, let me, let me just, I recognize myself in your book, all right, because this probably happens to you all the time, Mark. You talk about like when you when you tell people about the doctrine of discovery, about exceptionalism, about generational pointed racism and genocide and and the residential schools, whatever. And, and you're talking to people like me, like good hearted, well-meaning, ignorant white guys yeah. who aren't trying to fight you. Right. Like we, we're listening to it. And what happens to people like me? Right. We get teary-eyed and we go, oh, Mark, can you forgive me? Right? It's a really quick response. And I, when you were re reading that, you were describing basically somebody like me. And I was like, oh, man, I have been in that situation. I've even on this podcast got choked up. Think, uh, we were talking about residential schools at, a, at another time and I got choked up. It was emotion. And what's happening to someone like me and what do you do with someone like me? I'm not trying to white center this conversation, by the way, yeah. <laughs> but I am just no. aware that like the white response is part of the story. Yeah. What's happening three, to someone like me? Three of the sections in the book that we, I get asked questions about most frequently are chapters three and four, which talk about how we get from the teachings of Jesus to a doctrine of discovery. Yeah. Teachings that say, love those who persecute you and pray for those and then a doctrine that says, kill people who don't worship like you. Yeah. I get asked, like, that's a, a paradigm shifting couple of chapters. The two chapters we have on Lincoln, those are probably the two hardest chapters in the book, not only to write, but also to read, because we're basically completely deconstructing this mythological legacy of Abraham Lincoln and showing people what he really was, which was a white supremacist, unapologetic white supremacist, and a blatant genocidal ethnic cleansing. Also president. unarguable. Like it. It's like a it's like an argument that can't be combated. Yeah, you can't once yeah. once you read it, you're like, yeah, well, there it again. Is. And the reason is because the U.S. has never lost a war that matters, and so victors write the history, and so we've written our history for 250 years. So just I tell people, just imagine if Nazi Germany won World War II, how would they have recorded the legacy of Adolf Hitler? How would they record the the, the atrocities of the Holocaust? Well. This is exactly what we did to Abraham. Maybe Lincoln. they would have built a big temple with a big statue of Adolf oh, Hitler absolutely. sitting down in it. Yeah, and what Holocaust, right? We have yeah. Holocaust deniers today. Imagine if they won the war. There was no Holocaust. Yeah. 
but the the other chapter that gets a lot of attention is the chapter 11 which is the chapter on trauma and just to kind of go briefly into this i i talk about one of the traumas that most people are familiar with which is ptsd a post-traumatic stress or even a post-traumatic stress disorder that's an individual diagnosis for someone who's experienced a single horrifying event so if you're get assaulted or you're in a battle you a car accident right you can get a post-traumatic stress or even a post-traumatic stress disorder it affects you mentally physically emotionally relationally kind of this all-encompassing condition there's another trauma called a complex ptsd which doesn't come from a single event it comes from a series of events so it's still an individual diagnosis so if if you can get ptsd from being assaulted you can get complex ptsd from living in an abusive relationship yeah if you can get ptsd from being in a battle you can get complex ptsd from living in a war zone psychologists have observed that a complex ptsd can pass down from generation to generation I've seen no definitive answer of how that happens, but it's definitely been observed. Then there's a third trauma called historical trauma, which is how psychologists understand the deep dissatisfaction in a broader community. Historical trauma was first observed um, in the Native American community in response uh, to boarding schools. They, you, you can also observe it in African-American communities after Jim Crow or segregation or even enslavement. You can see it in Japanese American communities after internment camps or uh, Jewish communities after the Holocaust. I refer to historical trauma as a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD. And so when I talk to these marginalized audiences, I prepare myself for both the individual and the corporate trauma that's going to be in the room. I do this so I can I can help them walk through whatever I'm saying that might trigger them so I can address points where they might be in denial or they might you know not know what to do and I do this so I the work won't get derailed but as I was speaking before I came to this understanding on trauma I was lecturing with a lot of the same content I have today this is 7 to 8 years ago and after each lecture I'd have two lines in front of me one was a line of people of color who were giddy I, I didn't know all these dates and facts, but now you just you just confirmed everything I knew was true. I now I have dates and facts, and they were they were almost giddy of like I knew it was that bad. And then I have a line of white people who were flush, like just like a sheet, and they're like, I had no clue it was that bad. And then they'd say, Tell me how to fix it. That was their first question. Exactly. What can I do? And as I looked at this, I recognized from my own experience, even trauma in their eyes. But I didn't know where it was coming from or how to frame it. And then I found some research by a psychologist named Rachel McNair, who wrote a book called PITS, Perpetration-Induced Traumatic Stress. She identified this sort of trauma that was very similar to PTSD except if PTSD afflicted the victim of the horrifying event, Pitts would afflict the perpetrator, the person who caused it. So now that I had this diagnosis that I wasn't aware of before, and I already had the understanding that historical trauma was a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD, I can now hypothesize if PTSD had that, that spectrum, Pitts, 
might also have a multi-generational communal manifestation at a complex level. And that was the trauma that I was observing was afflicting white people. Because when you're talking in racial dialogues, the conversation is most likely going to be disrupted, not by a person of color, but by a white person. If you don't believe me, look at any conversation on critical race theory out there right now, right? White people absolutely freak out about critical race theory. Why? Well, the first symptom of trauma is shock and denial. They're living in a state of shock and denial. And two of the components of critical race theory are A, it assumes that the racism and white supremacy is systemic and it's been institutionalized. And second, critical race theory lifts up the voices from the margins. So if the US has never lost a war that matters and written its own history for 250 years, and it makes Abraham Lincoln look like a god, when actually he's more like Adolf Hitler, right? There's this, imagine how scary it would be to hear history, not from your mythological builders, your mythology builders, but from the people who actually endured the oppression and violence of, of your nation and of your own people. That's a terrifying thought. So white people are absolutely terrified of critical race theory. And it's because they're traumatized. I won't go into the depth of this now, but most people treat white Americans as either racist or fragile, right? Even ever since the lynching of George Floyd, one of the top selling books in the US has been White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And I have problems with both of the paradigms of treating white people first and foremost as racist or first and foremost as fragile. I found that treating white Americans first and foremost as traumatized actually allows me to circumvent a lot of their triggers and helps me to, to keep my work from being derailed as frequently. And I'm not trying to convince white people they're traumatized. I just treat them that way. And I found that that actually works very effectively for me to be able to, to get stated the things that need to be stated and to get the things addressed that need to be addressed. Now, the hardest thing about treating white Americans as traumatized is it's challenging to get them into the room. So once I have a room full of white people, I generally know what I can do with them. And, and actually some of my better audience have been, have been conservative white people who they the ones who the audiences that respond the loudest are conservative white people who would never self-select to come hear me speak but they come to an event because they trust whoever organized it and then i get put on the stage they have no clue who i am and they don't figure out what i'm going to say until it's too late to leave politely and those are the audiences that actually i get the the most exuberant responses from because i'm addressing things that they know deep down but have never been had the courage to look at. And I'm not shaming them. I'm not attacking them. I'm treating them as traumatized, but I'm also being blatantly honest with them. The challenge is, is how, so once they're in the room, I can do fairly well. The challenge is how do we get them into the room? And that's what I'm working on next. That's the next book. You write for president. <laughs> that's the next, yeah, that's what, that's what we have to figure out is how do we, now that I understand and we can, treating them as traumatized is effective, how do we actually now get white people into the room to engage in the dialogue? And that's the $24,000 question right now. But meanwhile, all these white people are having their destructive party 
and the old grandmother's upstairs, but she's tired. She doesn't want to have to keep having this conversation over and over again, does she? Well, that's the challenge, right? Is, is there's a lot of people who've been following me, following my campaign, wrestling with these issues, not only through me, but through others for a long time. And they're further down the path. And yet there's so many people who have known nothing about this stuff. And so I find myself, oftentimes I'll get a mixed audience of people who've heard my message and, and agree with it and want to hear more and people who've never heard it before and just need the basics. And I, every time I speak now, that's one of the challenges I have is how do I engage, make sure I engage everybody in the room when I have people who are much further down the road and people who are just coming into the conversation for the first time. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of work. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what's going to happen in the next year. I'm excited to see what's going to happen even in the next election. I am disappointed that we didn't get the national dialogue generated that I wanted to in the 2020 campaign. Um, I haven't made a decision about what's going to happen in 2024 yet. But I definitely know there is some movement and there's a lot of people who are ready to engage in this dialogue more actively. And so I'm working hard to kind of find a way to keep that move, that momentum going forward. I love it. I, I, I find it quite actually quite useful that the way you were talking about you deal with people as you assume you basically assume that they're already traumatized, even if they don't know it or acknowledge it. And you're not trying to get them to admit it. You are just saying this is how I am approaching you and I, to me I feel like going forward you talked about 2024 and Mark it's gonna get way worse <laughs> like this this isn't a world that's magically getting better right the, the the crazies and the hate are getting worse and I, I almost wonder whether like approaching people not expecting that they'll magically all of a sudden become better but at least if I approach people knowing that they're traumatized that might help me deal with them well and this is what i mean this is what's to be expected right you you can't bury your trauma forever it's going to come out and the longer you try to suppress it the more messy its exposure is going to be and so it's not surprising what's going on in our nation right now this is to be if you understand white america is a group of traumatized people both the left and the right right? What's happening today is not surprising. And so again, what I found is, what I find is while there's a lot of potential danger in, key, in, in allowing this trauma to continue to be suppressed, the more reactive white America gets, the easier it's becoming to address it. And the easier it is to show people that there's a problem. Right. The, the problem was during Trump's administration, it was easy to help people understand we have a problem. It's much harder during the Biden administration because, again, it's a teenager versus a five year old. And so they're better at kind of hiding it. They're both not healthy. And so it's it's how do we. OK, so during the Trump administration, I had one approach during the Biden administration. I have a different approach. If, if there is another campaign in 2024, depending on who's running and where we're at as a nation, I'm sure we'll have to try different approaches to try and bring this conversation to the forefront, whether it's a candidate or just as you know someone who's trying to bring these issues more into the national consciousness. 
So yeah, it's always it's always kind of evolving as you see where we're at and where what our country is dealing with and what our country needs to deal with. You mentioned the the work that you've been working on and things kind of coming up in the future. Where where could we direct listeners to who want to find out more about what you're working on or to, to keep tabs on you? What's the best way for our listeners to, to keep track of where you're at and what you're doing? Yeah, so my website is wirelesshogan.com. W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N. On my website, you can actually buy signed copies of my book. And my social media handle on almost all platforms is Wireless Hogan. Okay. Um, Facebook, it's Wireless Hogan, Mark Charles Wireless Hogan, but I have a, a, a verified account there so you can find me there. Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, even TikTok, it's Wireless Hogan. Wireless Hogan. I'm most active on um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and YouTube. Occasionally, I'll do some stuff on TikTok, but I every day... I several times a week I'll sit down in in on online in the live stream and have my second cup of coffee and talk about kind of the politics of the day or issues going on in our country several times a week I'll go out to the Potomac River near my home and watch the sunrise and live stream the sunrise as it comes up over Turtle Island um, I do a lot to engage people on my social media and I very much welcome people to to jump on and engage with me in those spaces yeah, there's a lot of I put a lot of effort into curating a good dialogue on my social media, yeah. one that's not just destructive, but one that actually is trying to build a good conversation. And so I invite people to join me. I encourage everyone to do that. And the, the two things I would say, check out your TEDx talk, which I'm sure is very easy to find just by Googling. And also do get Unsettling Truths, which is the book that uh, Mark co-wrote with uh, Sung Chan Ra, a professor at Duke University, and they write about the doctrine of discovery and American exceptionalism and white fragility and PTSD and all these things. It's uh, It's been such a good read. I recommend it as a one-stop shop for anybody interested in this stuff. It's all there. Anything that you need to know is in that book. So, My co-author is now at, at Fuller. He, he teaches it. He just moved to Fuller this past year. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So he, I think he was educated at Duke, but he's, he's teaching at Fuller now. So he just moved there a few months ago. Well, congratulations. No. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I got him next on, then we'll we'll continue to this discussion. But until then, Mark, thank you for coming on to the tent. It's just been really great to have you here. And uh, we really bless you in all that you do in the future. And I, I would say I'd love to see you run again, but that's for you to ch- decide, I'm sure. Yeah, well, thank you, Stephen. I appreciate the chance to be here. Um, thank you for the, the great dialogue. I love talking about these things. And yeah, please feel free to order the book. You can get signed copies on my website and also to follow me on social media. I, I'd love to have the engagement there. So, Akihat and Hakonet and Walk in Beauty. May we learn how to walk in beauty together. Thank you, Mark Charles. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patron page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. <laughs>